This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. On today's show, aren't extracurricular activities supposed to be, I don't know, extra? That's what they say. One listener, though, contacted me. She says she's feeling like she needs to pile them onto her CV. So I invite her on the show today, and I hope she'll be able to join. Oh, there she is. Woo! Right on time. So we'll talk to her about that. I've roped in MD-PhD student Aline Sanduk to help us today. Hello, Aline. Uh, but I'm not the only one. I'm not done yet. Oh, okay, good. All right. Hello. <laughs> I was like, I'm, why are you singling me out? I'm not the only person here. M1's... AJ Chowdhury and Alex Belzer, or the twins, as I like to call them. They're Howdy. They're back. Hey. And uh, M4 Holly Conger is here, too. And yeah, we're just uh, waiting for Tasneem Ahmed, a fourth-year medical student at King's College in London, to join us. Before we start, later on the show, we'll uh, scream triumphantly over the moldering corpse of Step 2 Ooh. Clinical Skills, yes. which felt the cold steel of the axe this week. And also, just so you know, we're live streaming our recording sesh on Facebook. So join our invite-only group, the Shortcoat Podcast Student Lounge, to help us dissect our topics from every possible angle. And uh, yeah, that would be that would be a lot of fun. Chandler, Michael, Emily, they're all here. Hey, it's Tasneem. Hello. There we Hi, I apologize for the delay. Not at all. Thank you so much for, for coming today. Let's talk about your question that you sent to us. I think most medical schools would say that extracurricular activities are vital to students. They provide opportunities for recreation, learning through service, uh, a source of community, and potentially something to put on your CV. Here at the Carver College of Medicine, we have more than uh, 70 student interest groups on the books. And of course, there are those that one pursues outside of the college, like hobbies and personal interests. But you wrote to us at the shortcoats at gmail.com with a concern. What did you What did you write about? Yeah, so essentially I was saying how I got into med school. I was surrounded by all these people who had all these really interesting hobbies and other skills and other things that they were doing. And very quickly, I felt like I needed to be doing more. And essentially, my concern was, when does this ambition become relentless? And when does it become overwhelming? When do we need to cap it? Or when do we just need to question it a little bit almost? Yeah. What extracurricular activities did you find yourself taking up? So like everything. So I tried dancing for a bit, tried hip hop. I even took a coding course this time last year and I absolutely hate coding, but I was like, nope, I can do this. I'm going to prove it to myself that I can do this. And I joined a lot of societies as well. Like for example, the medical students association at my university, I organized the halfway ball um, in my third year for the medics in my year, which was a big task considering there's 400 medics in the year and it was like a grand ball. Yeah, we call, then, we call that the med school prom here. <laughs> and then the following year, I became education director for the MSA. And I was just, I, sometimes I sat there and I thought, why am I doing this? Like, med school's already a lot. I've got so much work to do. I'm falling further behind the lectures, further behind the revising. And like, all for what? All for kind of 
a certificate at the end of the year, but also a huge feeling of accomplishment. You want to do it as much as you question it. You want to do it more and more and more. And so I've been, I've been thinking about it a lot. I've been reflecting on it a lot. And I've been asking a lot of other students their thoughts on this. And I think there's a moment where when you start med school, everyone tells you it's so competitive. But there's a moment where you realize, wait, this is what it means when they say it's so competitive. You're constantly trying to prove yourself. You're tr- constantly trying to, to show that you still, you've still got it. You're still special. You're still able to do more. And yeah, I mean, that's just some of my thoughts on it. What do you think? <laughs> well, I think med school definitely attracts competitive people. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because you're told it's a competition to get in. And then it's a competition for your specialty and your residency spot of choice. And so I think that's just kind of how our system is built and bred. And so I think that because it's viewed as a competition a lot of the time, you end up doing a lot of that compare and despair attitude where you're always looking at other people and being like, wow, they did something cool. Shouldn't I be doing something cool? You know, like if I need to compete against these people for what I want, I need to do cool things too. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. there's certainly a social motivation there. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the UK medical education system, you like do med school after high school, after secondary school. Is that right? Yeah. You go to sixth form, so you have to, your two years of A-levels, and then you go straight into uh, sixth form. Gotcha. And so I know, like, in our four years of undergrad, the medical education application system is so competitive that we have to strive and put everything we can in our CVs. And so the competition is definitely evident there. But they try to push this culture in medical school that it's collaborative, not competitive. And so I think if you ask anybody in the administration, especially at Carver, they're kind of known for this they'll tell you that it's collaborative, not competitive. I think it is to a degree, but there is no dodging the competitive part at the end. There's still a class rank. There's still so many spots and everything. And so like there is an edge of competition in it, but I think you're right. Carver does a lot better at inspiring collaboration than many places. Now look, as representative of the Carver College, I have to push back a little bit here. There's no class rank. We don't rank you. Yeah, you're still put into a category, and you there's still like they're categories of love, Holly. I know, but they're, they're still just categories. You're still ranked in like the upper quartile or the middle quartile, and there's still AOA, which is our like distinction for the top twenty percent of the class. I mean, the the simple fact of the matter is, at some point. Because there are competitive specialties out there, residency programs look for a way to stratify their applicants. And it's dumb, but it is what it is. I was talking to a doctor that I know this morning, actually. He graduated top of his year and consistently throughout med school was always in the top 1%. And I was asking him, I was like, what are your thoughts on this? And he was saying, it's very easy to become addicted to this feeling of doing really well and knowing that you're doing better than your peers, for example. But he was like, looking back at med school, the best moments were the moments that I shared with my friends, the times that we revised together, the times that we shared resources with each other, the times and he had a really good group of friends. And he was like, the way that we would work is always help the weakest member of our team. And he was like, at the end of the day, that's so much more fulfilling. Because if you think about it, okay, cool. You graduate med school in the UK earliest by about the time you're 23, 24. And then you go into your training and you could potentially, if you're really good at this race and you're doing really well and you're going really fast you could become a consultant by the time you're about 35 and he was like but then and then what like you're going to be in that same role which is often very niche for the next 30 to 40 years why rush that process why not help your peers get there with you almost and i think it kind of goes back to that quote where if you want to go fast go alone and if you want to go far go together 
So I think the competition kind of encourages us to be the best that we can be. And obviously you want your doctors to be the best that they can be. You want to make sure that they're hardworking. But I think definitely having more of a community-based feel can also allow you to do really well and also encourage you to do really well. But I think when I was thinking about all these extracurricular things that we take on board, sometimes I think it comes from this same addiction of, okay, we're so used to kind of being praised for our efforts or getting really good grades and the validation that comes from that. And then all of a sudden you get to med school and you're on the same level. All of a sudden from being at the top of the mountain, you're kind of at base camp again almost. And you're competing with people on the exact same level as you. And the competition almost becomes harder. So then when people ask you, oh, what do you do? Or how are you doing? I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I study medicine. It, it feels like it's not enough anymore. It feels like you've got to have like your fingers in lots of different baskets. And I think that for me, I've been questioning a lot and kind of have been, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think you should have like one ambition in life and kind of be like, okay, I want to be a doctor and that's it. I think it's really great that we live in a society now where you could do medicine and do so many other things and just in general have so many interests and hobbies and, and even careers. What you mentioned, the ones that you got into, you know, here at the Carver College of Medicine, we're sort of big into student interest groups. And these are groups that, generally speaking, were formed, I think, originally by the students themselves. You know, so I'm interested in family medicine, we call it here. I don't know what they call it there. And so I'm going to form a student interest group. Or maybe you're into orthopedics or whatever, and you form a student interest group. Is that how things have been, have come together at King College? I think that's how a lot of societies are formed. So, for example, you will have like uh, specialty societies like pediatric society, cardiovascular society, and then you have like other groups, for example, that are sports centered groups that are more niche. Like, I don't know, if you like anime, there might be an anime society. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds pretty familiar. Yeah. So, it is very similar in that, in that regard. You know, one of the things that I do know is that there are definitely students who don't do these things who are just here to go to med school. And the reasons for that vary. Maybe they have families that they want to spend the rest of their time on. You know, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not in a position to expend all that energy on extracurricular activities. And they seem to, they still seem to do pretty well. I, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody, you know, not Matt, not getting a job after med school because they didn't participate in student activities do you do my, my co-hosts have you have you heard of anything like that yes <laughs> yeah go I for think it that as someone going through the residency application process as we speak if you have nothing on your application other than you went to med school and you passed everything like i think it's very difficult to stand out and get interviews and things because medicine doesn't do a very good job at teaching you to be complacent. You know, they look for people who want to push and advance the field and move forward and all of those things. And so I think that they want to know what you spent your time doing. And sometimes for people that is having a family and they definitely, you know, respect that and understand that you can't do 600 hours a week of student activities if you have a family. But usually they like to see that you got in invested in something. Like a lot of times it's quality over quantity of your activity, like being yeah. super 
super invested and super involved in something very heavily means more than being a member of 18 interest groups where you just went to a meeting every once in a while. I think it's funny mm. that you bring up the student interest groups because I think they're so common nowadays that it really doesn't stand out that much. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think, you I know, agree. like I actually never was on the leadership for any of the student interest groups. You know, I focused my energy on other activities that I thought were more unique that I was more interested in and wanted to be invested in. But yeah, I think it doesn't teach you how to be complacent. That's probably part of the reason we feel this constant pressure to like keep doing something, keep moving forward, keep pushing. <laughs> but mm. if you really like what you're pushing for, I've found that that helps me not feel burnt out. You know, like everybody knows how to check boxes to do something just to get it on your resume, just so it's there, especially pre-meds. I think that that's, you know, to get into med school, everybody wants to check the volunteering box. Everybody wants to check the research box. Everybody wants to check the shadowing box. But the things that you get a lot out of are the things that you do, not just to check the box. To add on to that, back in pre-med, so my undergrad was a small state school that for some reason just sent all of his pre-med graduates to amazing medical schools like the Carver College of Medicine. And uh, there's definitely that was very that was in... very subtle, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> I tried. I told <laughs> Alex I was going to get that, that in. <laughs> told me he was going to say that. So there were two camps of pre-meds that got accepted into medical school. There were the ones that did a million extracurriculars, like they were in the lab and in class from nine to five, and then from five to midnight they were in the library from Monday to Friday, and then on weekends they were volunteering and. Uh, doing other clinical activities. And they, by the time we graduated, they were very burnt out. And then there was another camp of people that, you know, they did enough to check the boxes and to show that they are interested in medicine, that they're altruistic, good people, but they always, or not always, they had some kind of thing that they were very passionate about, very focused on. And those were the people that ended up being the happiest and most resilient throughout the application process and now in medical school and further on. I think there's a little bit of a, a representation bias here. I mean, we mentioned that that we always see these people talking about or posting about or actively doing these things that they're doing outside of school that they're super invested in. But I can't even like think of anybody in my class who's not super involved in something, partially because I haven't actually met like most of the people in my class, but partially <laughs> because... Thank you, COVID. But partially because... I mean, we just don't hear about it. So I think we get this idea in our head that there's so many people doing so many different things and everybody's pushing and everybody's competitive when I, I just, maybe that's not actually the case. And I think also with the role of social media, the more tangible something is, the more people that are looking at it, the more followers that it's got, the more traction that it's gained, the more successful you kind of interpreted to be or the more success it's correlated to. Whereas that might not always be the case. And I think for me, when I ha when I was doing all these different things, I had to stop and ask myself, okay, if nobody could see what I'm doing, what would I continue doing? So what am I truly doing for myself? Whereas like, what am I doing for other people? What am I doing? Because everyone else can see that I'm doing it. Definitely. I think that's a that's really a good philosophy. Good so I was really excited to see that you were going to come on the show and talk with us. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I found your post very, your question very, very relevant. I don't, I absolutely don't think you're alone. And I think a lot of people were commenting, you know, if not on the post itself, like there were conversations happening about how very relevant it was the concern that you brought up and I found it very authentic. And if I'm being honest, it broke my heart a little bit actually, because oh. you sounded so, in, you sound so incredibly hardworking and yet so hard on yourself. 
<laughs> Thank you, though. Sounds like a med Typical med student. Because all of the things that you described, those are, you know, pretty important involved things that took time away from an already very difficult job. And I, I don't know, it didn't sound like you were giving yourself much credit for what you had accomplished. You were still thinking about what things you hadn't done and what more you could do. And so the reason that I was I, like particularly excited to talk to you today is because I think a lot of people struggle with this. I know I have struggled with this quite a bit. And I think, you know, I wanted to share a little bit of advice with you and anyone listening that, you know, in med school, we are surrounded by people who are really good at selling themselves, smart and talented, but also excellent at their own PR, right? Is it okay for me to talk about the specific examples you mentioned in your post, or would you rather I didn't? Yeah, no, please, it's fine. Okay. You know what I thought of when you mentioned the ballerina and the Olympic athlete? Yeah. My first thought was, why are they not still those things? Yeah. Right? Maybe that ballerina had a developed an eating disorder based on being a dancer and she had to drop out and now met and now she's in med school the olympic athlete I think they, they, they were doing both things at the same time so they were in med school but they were also pursuing these other things which i just found mind-boggling yeah that's always like stunning when i hear <laughs> stuff like that yeah i take that back all right well then about the olympic athlete my other thought there is like how do we know they didn't have some career ending, you know, injury and their fallback was going to med school, right? Like you're only seeing one piece of like a, probably a much bigger story and missing some context that would explain a little bit more about that person's history. And it's not to minimize those accomplishments. Like those are things to be respected and appreciated, but there, we really do have this habit of always comparing ourselves to other people because that's what we had to do to get in. You don't have to be the best to get into med school, but you have to be better than everyone else. And so you end up being the best, right? But it's really hard to turn that off when you're in med school. But the fact is that it really doesn't matter what other people are doing and measuring yourself against them, you will always lose. So to add to all of the things that people have already said, I think what really helps people stand out is authenticity because it's easy to do work that you enjoy because it doesn't even feel like work. And then when you really commit yourself to a theme or a cause and really put all of your time there, the amount of work that you put into it will make it stand out like this person's ballerina career or, and you'll find other people talking about you that way of like, wow, I don't know how she does it. I mean, she runs this club. She also volunteers with these people. And to be honest, people probably do say those things about you, but you're not around to hear them. A part of us almost seeks that a little bit sometimes to want to make sure that we're being spoken about well, or making sure that people don't think we're doing the bare minimum which I feel like studying medicine has become almost like if you're just doing that, you're doing the bare minimum, you should be doing a lot more. And that's not a bad thing. Like I said, it's good to push yourself, but when does it become overwhelming? Cause you're right. It is that, that never ending ambition almost. I think what you need to do is be your own cheerleader. You have to find a way to become your own validation because you're right seeking external validation is it's totally normal but it is really addictive and when you don't get that it feels bad but i think your story like the fact that you got into med school is a tremendous accomplishment based on everything you said about yourself right working class background 
you know, of foreign ethnicity, it's not lost on me how different the American application system is from the European. I don't know about the UK, but I spent some time in Germany. And in Germany, I think in the application, if one of your parents is a physician, that's like that is accounted for in your application score. Like, oh, okay, this person is descended from physicians, so they're probably going to be good at this. You know, wow. it's just one thing of many things. But I would like to see you give yourself more credit for what you have already accomplished and to be, be nicer to yourself. You're great. <laughs> like, clearly, you work very hard and you care a lot. Is there ever a medic who's kind to themselves? <laughs> I was going to say, I think med students are notoriously bad at giving themselves credit for the things they accomplish. They have this weird, something that I've noticed at least, is med students have this weird like external locus of control for all the good things that they've accomplished, where they're like, oh, I got lucky, I had help, you know, things worked out, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do this without this person, you know, blah, 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 for all the good things. Every time they win an award, every time they get something published, it's, they attribute a lot to like external circumstances, but every time they get a bad grade on a test or something doesn't work out, they're like, oh, it's because I'm not smart enough. It's because I was dumb and I didn't study. And so like with that dichotomy, it becomes very hard to like give yourself credit for the good things. So you'd think that it'd have to, you'd need to be consistent. Like if you're going to, say it's all you when you fail. It's also is all you when you succeed, you know? So I think med students in general are not good at that. The imposter syndrome. Sorry. Yeah. yeah it's very similar to imposter yeah. syndrome. <laughs> now, Holly, do you think that that's causative of success? I mean, like we all got here, right? We're all in medical school, which means that we probably held ourselves accountable for our failures at some point and used it to get better. We have to strike a balance between beating ourselves up and um, pushing ourselves to grow from something we screwed up and um attributing it to outside factors because i mean like how much burden can one person bear yeah but on the other hand i mean we still have to use that to grow yeah i think denying accountability is definitely a bad thing you should definitely be accountable for your failures but you're also accountable for your successes and i think that it's harder to give yourself that credit medicine doesn't teach you how to do that though we're also not surrounded by quote-unquote normal people whenever i talk to my friends and family chop liver no, no. But, like, you know, we spend so much time with other med students who are all this way and all doing incredible things and all super smart that, like, you lose touch a little bit with the rest of the world. Or at least sometimes I'm like, oh, I forget that, like, you know, we're in this, like, very small portion of the population that has these challenges. And that sometimes you can give yourself a break. <laughs> That's cool. Before the show, during our staff meeting, I was talking with Eric, and uh, he was saying that he's just recently sort of emerged from the cloud, the fo- the mental fog of med school, <laughs> and uh, realized that there was all this other crap happening in the world, and uh, you know, really sort of experiencing that more than he usually would. I mean, you sort of put your head down in med school and you forget that there are it's a whole other world out there. That's kind of part of the problem, right? But it's really funny you say that because I don't know if it's like this in America, but here in the UK and especially in London, everything's so interconnected and all the students from all different courses, just, they just all know each other. And like medics are notoriously known for like being the worst students on campus because (laughs) we're just so tunnel visioned. All we know is medicine, all we know is science, all we know is healthcare. And it's like, we don't have any interest in like politics and what's going on around the world. And yeah. 
And so it kind of, and very recently, I think it's a conversation that a lot more students are having and be becoming a lot more vocal about. So you see a lot more medics like reading books and like trying to get woke and cultured on like everything else. It is a good point. And I think you, you can't take away from the fact that like medics might have this tunnel vision because they had to work so hard to get into med school and they had to focus so much of their energy on sciences to get into med school and things like that. It really is all encompassing. Yeah. It doesn't take quite as much work to, you know, become like an accountant or an administrative services coordinator. It it also seems like, I don't know, maybe this is unique to our school, but they try to keep us involved somehow. I mean, we take a course that's called medicine and society. I mean, I don't know how much that keeps us up to date on current events, but it, I think it's just exists there as a reminder that, we can be so entrenched in healthcare, but the whole point of healthcare is to be integrated into the world. Healthcare doesn't exist standalone. It exists with a society that it serves. So we actually just had a bioethics lecture on medical errors. And the first thing that we discussed was that it's okay to acknowledge that you made a mistake and to not be so harsh on yourself because then you can't grow on from it. And I think that's something that can apply to this situation as well, where as med students, we're all so hard on ourselves for not getting a perfect score, for not being in all the clubs, for just, you know, trying to achieve this sense of perfection that isn't attainable. And I think it's really important to keep in mind that there there is a world outside of medicine that you have to remember exists because if you're having a bad day in medicine, you could still be having a great day overall if there's other things in your life that keep you more grounded. Yeah, I want to echo exactly that thought that the importance of cultivating both relationships and activities outside of med school is paramount to well-being. I think one of the most well-adjusted people in my MSTP cohort made it a point and MSTP being students in the dual degree program, so med school and then taking a a break from med school to go to grad school and get a PhD. It's an eight-year program. So it's really a long-term endeavor, even more like on top of med school, which is already colossal. But she, I think, really made it a point right at the beginning of her time here to make friends in the city that weren't in the program. And I think that really helps her keep perspective on what a small world med school really is. It It is not our whole world, but it sure feels like it pretty often. And if you're not the best at the thing that represents 100% of your world, it feels like 100% of your life is a failure. That's so true. Yeah. Right. And I feel like the theme of all the advice and all the things that we're sharing here is just perspective has to be adjusted, yeah. right? If you're being so hard, maybe you need to move the goalposts a little bit. I, that's right? what I always say, like make, define Define what success is for you. Yeah. Don't so, let other people define that for you. Yes, there are going to be times when there are grades and there are, you know, there's interviews and all this kind of stuff where people are going to sort of say, you know, this is what I want out of you. But, but you always have to keep in mind, what do you want? And also beware of humble braggers. They are everywhere and they are insufferable. <laughs> It's part of their good at PR scheme. (laughs) Yes. Well, so, I mean, this is something that I noticed pretty early on in med school and what motivated me to stay away from other students because it was impossible for me to spend time around other students without hearing comments like that and have it impact my psyche in a really negative way. 
because by that point I hadn't realized what that really was, which is that humble braggers brag because most of the time they don't have anyone in their lives to be proud of them. So they have to be proud of themselves or they have to share their accomplishments with other people to get the praise they're not getting somewhere else. So that's to elicit some sympathy for them. They're not bad people. But then you hear things like that and you're like, oh, well, I'm not doing that. And it makes you feel bad. Can I pose a question to you about, mm-hmm. would you say social media kind of breeds humble braggers? Do you think it's an oh, environment yeah. for humble bragging? <laughs> so I think social media is somewhat sometimes just outright bragging, you know, like nobody posts, like I had a shitty day today and these are all the things I didn't do well. And these are the crappy things that happened in my life. You know, nobody posts that they post their accomplishments and their vacations and all the great stuff in your life. And it's just not real. Yeah. I, I, to add to what Holly is saying in the natural world, humble braggers kind of, they, are subjected to eventually being cast out on their own because the only people that can stand <laughs> to be around humble braggers are other humble braggers. And eventually... Aline, they... you're like a hardliner. Aline's a, a hardliner. They are cast out. I, I, I'm trying to think of the expression. But... She's psychoanalyzing me right now. <laughs> this is how society converged on Instagram influencers. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing. Ugh. Social media... It thwarts those natural laws and it gives a platform to humble braggers to to humble brag in a very visible way. Whereas, you know, in the absence of any external influence, if there wasn't any social media, these people would eventually kind of peter out on their own and end up, you know, somewhere else. You, you wouldn't see them. But social media attracts people like that. Because w- what's the point of humble bragging? To get the external validation. And there is no more addictive form of external validation than like likes and clicks there was a guy and this is a stupid example but there's an old friend of mine from high school who posted about getting this very cute dog and posted a video and got like 600 likes and i was watching this video and i was like this got more likes than when i got into med school (laughs) it was like a 400 percent increase over like the meager 60 likes then i was like that's what a ridiculous thought like i didn't was the dog cute though? Adorable. <laughs> uh, he de- that dog deserved all 600 of those likes. But my point is, yeah, social media, social media is, it, it can be risky. You can make it work for you. You can control the content that's filtered your way, but it is designed to, to kind of control the way that you look at the world and the way you look at yourself a little bit. So it's not unsafe to consume, but just being mindful of like what you are seeing is having an effect on you. Evan in in the live stream says that he's glad we're talking about this as a pre-med. It's nice to hear that others who are further along on the road to becoming a doctor are having these problems too. And also like to touch on the social media thing, social media is perfectly designed to tell you that your self-worth is defined by who likes that picture, like how many people like your thing. And so it makes it feel like if other people don't like it, if other people aren't listening to you and liking your stuff, you're worthless than the people that get 2000 likes on everything they posted. So I think that that's a very toxic environment in general. And I think the whole influencer thing is dumb because these are not the type of people we should be praising, but that's my personal soapbox. (laughs) You got to get that serotonin hit somehow. Yeah. I have one thing that I was thinking about and it's that I asked doctors once, you know, like what they think is protective against burnout or what leads to it. Cause I think that burnout in med school is very different than burnout as an actual physician, which is an interesting concept to think about. But 
all of the doctors, every single one that I asked had the same answer, which also struck me. And the answer was, you need to be a doctor and X and something else. You know, like if all you have in your life is medicine, you will get burned out because medicine is challenging, you know, especially when systematic things are in your way from caring to the patients, whether that's like the EMR being really terrible or administrators defining policies that don't make sense, whatever it is, if medicine is all you have, like you're going to burn out. And so they are all like, I have something else in my life that helps protect against burnout. And so I just thought that that was really interesting and kind of gets back to like pushing med students to do a bunch of other things. Like maybe in theory, it's so you can figure out what that X is for you. Something else by the time you're in residency and everything else that you know what that is and it can help you survive the bad medicine days. (laughs) I think that also circles back to what Tasneem said about the, what would I be doing if nobody else saw me doing this? You got to eventually you have to start doing something for you. You can push the altruistic narrative in medicine and how your whole life is altruistic. But uh, at a certain point, you got to exist as a human in the world. Well, also to add to that, there there are plenty of ways for ambition and altruism to intersect. Right. And I think by pursuing the things that you really enjoy that really motivate you to work hard. Like eventually your hard work that you doesn't even feel like work because you're so dedicated to this thing eventually makes you stand out. So there's a way to be competitive, but also do some good and kind of preserve your sanity at the same time. Some of my favorite interview questions are when they asked me like, why did you do this thing? Because I think they're looking for that. They're looking for, did you just check this box or do you actually care about this? (laughs) It's very easy to discern. Yeah. And they also, one of my favorite questions that I always get asked is what would you do if you couldn't do medicine? You know, like what would your job be? And I, which I think is a good question and, you know, something to think about because that helps you figure out like hobbies and other things to be involved in. I think the word that comes to mind regarding all the things that you guys just said was passion. Like if you're passionate about something, you're more likely to want to wake up and, and do that thing. And it's very easy for medicine to become your passion. I think the Japanese word for it is ikigai. It's like this thing that kind of gets you out of bed in the morning and it's something that you're good at, something that you've worked hard for, something that you get paid to do, which is essentially becoming a doctor for all of us. But it's definitely worth thinking about what is my passion outside of medicine, but not to kind of let that consume you, I think. I think that's the best advice is just only do things that you're passionate about so that you can shine. I did want to reserve a few minutes to celebrate over the corpse of Step 2 CS. Tasneem, that's one of our board exams that we have for med students. It's the clinical skills one. That's the one where they go and they go to a certain location in the country. There are only five, right? And they are judged in their interactions with standardized patients who score them on various attributes, communication skills, and physical exam skills, and things like that. That was just axed just the other day permanently. The National Board of Medical Examiners, otherwise known as the torturers of medical students, had paused CS this spring due to the pandemic and said they were going to take some time to revamp it, to make it better. Uh, Then it sounded like they got into it and decided, you know what, That's that's a terrible idea, and just canceled it saying they'd integrate some of the tested areas into other exams. 
Have they asked it because of COVID or have they asked it just period? It initially it was paused because of COVID. They couldn't, you know, they didn't want people traveling around. They didn't want people gathering for this exam in person, all that kind of stuff. And then ultimately, just yesterday, they canceled it completely. I think COVID is the push that they needed to finally get rid of it because there's just been tremendous uproar for a long time about how horrible this exam is and how useless it is and all the problems with it because it's it's kind of a racist test. (laughs) And by kind of, I mean, definitely, I think if you have an accent, you're much more likely to fail. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, if if you don't speak, you know, sort of like Midwestern English or whatever, then you know, it's kind of a problem. I think it's just useless because it doesn't actually test anything. Like I think the people who pass this are not more or less likely to like have trouble in residency. Like it's not predictive of anything. It's expensive. There's travel involved for a lot of people. I mean, it's only five places in the country to go to. It costs. It it was expensive. Yes. Let's let's remember it's dead now. Yes. And it was, you know, it cost $1,300 or something like that to even sign up for the test. Plus a plane ticket. Plus a plane ticket. Not to mention all the money that schools spent and and thus students spent on the the effort to prepare you for that it is the state the state sounds a lot harder than (laughs) (laughs) it sounds it sounds like money are you seeing dollars yeah speaking of commercial it'll be interesting to see how osteopathic medicine i'm blanking out on the name of the their version of the NBME, oh, the NBOME, oh. if they if they end up abolishing their version, it's like Comlex level 2 PE. They sent out, an, the, the NBOME sent out an email about how they're going to keep it going, even though Step 2 CS has been canceled. Is that right? And the the response so far has been pretty vocal from DO students. I was going to ask you if you're familiar with DO. I'm not, I'm not sure a lot of people outside the U.S. know the but there's there's two med schools you can go to. There's allopathic med school, which is the MD that we're doing, and then also osteopathic medicine. But oh, I see. And how are they different? Listen to a previous <laughs> yeah, episode. It's, like, it's a lot. It Just a couple sounded... of weeks ago, we did a show with with some DOs that, that talk about the differences. But basically, the sum of it is they're f- focused more on the whole patient, a holistic practice, and uh, they put a much bigger emphasis on primary care too. Yeah. I'm not sure, though, whether y'all should be breathing a full-throated sigh of relief, though, because I don't know how... Humayun J. Chowdhury, member of the Federation of State Medical Boards, a co-sponsor of the USMLE and perhaps AJ's dad, said that the (laughs) group will continue to seek innovative and sensible ways to assess medical licensing eligibility, which kind of sounds, uh, I don't know, a little perhaps ominous to me. I'm not really sure. Current M1s will be in the grace period between the axing of of CS and the implementation of the next one. So I'm just going to, sh- I'm going to shove that one in the bookshelf. Just put that. Yeah. Put a pin in that yeah. and and hope for the best. Oh, yeah. I think I- I'm hoping that I am in the grace period, which is where CS is gone. And then I'll like get the residency and it'll be like, haha, you didn't make anything new yet. <laughs> um, can I ask you a question? You know, with this exam that's been scrapped, do yeah. you have like a more condensed mini version throughout med school? Yes. Practical exams, yeah, yeah. yeah. Several practical exams during during their clinical rotations, and that was. I mean, the thing is, the thing about that is, is is some of these, you know, this that program was created, in fact, in response to this exam, to prepare students for that exam. My guess is that I don't know if those will go away because I think they're kind of they're needed. <laughs> I, I, re- I really appreciate those exams. I think yeah. they're really, really great. Yeah. 
you can read about riding a bike all you want, but it's still not going to prepare you to ride a bike when you're standing next to a bike on the street. Yeah. So. It also gives different types of students a fighting chance. Like you have the students who are really good at written papers and who aren't so good at communication skills, whereas you have the students who are a lot better with communicating with a patient, but like physically and all the hands-on stuff who might not be so good with the writtens and it kind of like balances out their scores in the end. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that they'll go away because you need to be able to assess someone's communication skills and can you build a differential and all these steps in med school. But I think the way they do it might change a little bit because there has been a heavy emphasis on memorize this checklist and hit all these boxes because that's how the CS exam was. And so now I'm hoping none of that will go away necessarily, but maybe it will be less checklist based and more just like, are you a good human who can talk to people and get your job done? Our first <laughs> M1 OSCE was literally just a checklist. It was pretty much if you can mention this thing and like put your hands on the person you're working with in sort of the right way. It doesn't have to be right, but if you technically satisfied the checklist, then you did okay. I don't know what McBurney's sign is. I just know that you got to press in the right spot on the abdomen. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys seen all the Bernie on McBurney's point memes? I think that will help us remember it for the rest of our life. <laughs> memes are a modern art form. Yeah. What I was going to say Agreed. is that. I remember when, you know, when I was in my first year uh, of med school, which was a lot of years ago, the SPs can nail you. And, you know, some of them are actually like former healthcare workers who are now in retirement and, and they're actually knowledgeable and they would nail you on the smallest things. And so it uh, maybe I'm interpreting Alex's story the wrong way, but it sounds like they've chilled out a little bit, maybe. We did it on our classmates because we, we weren't allowed SPs. That was a problem this year. Suzanne on the uh, live stream says, I guess this is a question for you, Tasneem. Do you think going straight from high school to med school is a good idea? This is what I wanted to ask also. Oh my gosh, because it's so different in the UK that you guys have to decide so early versus the US looks for like the opposite. They want somebody who is like thoroughly thought about the world and dedicated their life to this after getting older. I think there's pros and cons. So on one hand, you have a few students who take a gap year and come into medicine after taking a year out of school. And you can honestly tell the world of difference between those of us who have come straight from school, where 17, 18, going into med school, and those who have taken a year out, they're just, they're physically just so much mature, and they're just so much wiser, <laughs> and they're just so much slower, and they're just so calm, and they're so zen. And it's like, wow, I want to be like you. <laughs> um, so on one hand, first year of med school is actually a lot more intense than you realize. And I think... For me personally, I just didn't take it that seriously. I was kind of caught up with the whole university experience more so than like my actual course. And so it to kind of get to grips with what you're doing. And I did a separate degree last year in global health. And coming back into medicine after doing a separate degree, I've noticed like a world of difference. Medicine's slightly easier to grasp. It's You have a better work focus almost after like having a whole degree behind you. So I definitely think there are advantages to going into medicine after a degree. But having said that, I'm glad that we do have the system of being able to go into it straight from school. You do have to think about it a lot earlier. And when you have to, you adapt and you do. And it's nice to know that you're not going to be that much older when you do finally graduate and become a doctor. Because I think for a lot of people thinking about things like starting a family or getting married or having kids and all that kind of stuff, it five years of med school is enough of a deterrent for some people 
And I think if that was added on to, it would it would feel that much more unappealing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that when I thought about this issue, it's like, you know, being able to start earlier and so finish, you know, the school part earlier was like a big advantage. And I thought that that was really cool. But I also like reflect on myself when I was like 18, 19 or so. God, we were and, I'm like, and I'm just like, I don't know if I would have been successful in med school because you just have no life yeah, you have no life experience yeah. perspective, you know, where like if a bad grade on the test was the end of the world and that was like the worst thing that could happen. And now like the further you get in med school and the more you live in the world, you're just like, this is an obstacle and a challenge and a problem or something, but it's something that I can move past and it's not my sense of self anymore. And so I think that there's a maturity factor and I see it even in med school applicants nowadays, you know, like the 21 year olds straight through are very different than the people who took a couple years off to go like live a life. <laughs> A bad test grade is nothing compared to getting yelled at by a restaurant customer because you got their order wrong. There's real character building that goes on, I think, in the real world. And like not not a tremendous amount, but enough to, I think, make a noticeable difference that like Holly, I think you rightly point out and Tezamine also pointed out. It's not yeah. it's not bad to live a little and experience the real world before. I think the maturity is valuable and also it gives you a chance to kind of experience the world that your patients live in a little bit. You know, like if you have never known something other than college and then med school, it's yeah. a little tough to connect with people if you've never had another job or challenges and things like that. Or haven't had a job that wasn't arranged by your parents. A lot of people in the med school are the children of doctors and have a lot of connections. So they, they never had to have a boss that hated them, that they still had to be nice to, for example, which is what happens when you're on the wards, right? People and are that will to come. you. Yes, <laughs> oh, and people don't know how to deal with that. But if you ever waited tables or worked as a, as a barista, you, you would have built that skill a little bit. So you're not wrong. Yeah. Maturity is definitely a skill that's needed in med school that I don't know if we encourage even, even for the people that go straight through after an undergrad, but I can't imagine at 18. Speaking of maturity, the last thing I want to talk about today is Gwen, Gwyneth Paltrow's vagina candle. <laughs> Tasneem, this, is, this happened in your country. It was in the news this week when one exploded, as reported by your country's uh, best news publication, The Sun. Yes, please speak for your entire nation. Yeah, you're, all, all, of the, all of the kingdom, please explain this to us. You're on the spot now. Oh dear, I, I have to admit, I haven't heard much about it. You haven't heard much uh, about Gwyneth Paltrow's exploding vagina candle? What? Of course, we've, so, we've spoken clarify, of Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, goop product lines before, which is my ostensible reason for bringing this up today. That and, of course, the fact that I am still 12 years old inside my decrepit old man body and secretly relish this word. But vagina owner Jody Thompson, who is coincidentally my age, told The Sun that the whole thing was ablaze after it exploded and emitted huge flames with bits flying everywhere. The candle retails for $75. So if you want a candle, that's $75. I think that's the way to go. Yes, the candle for people with more money than cents. <laughs> she personally named the product This Smells Like Vagina after noticing that it had notes of uh, geranium, citrusy bergamot, and cedar absolutes juxtaposed with the damask rose and ambrette seed, which... Oh, she Okay. Tasneem, she does not represent us. I just want to make that very clear. But Gwyneth Paltrow can't do any more damage to the American brand than has been done. I feel like the American brand's been preeminent. You think so? I think so. I think we should, we should, you know, I, I think she's doing us a, 
a, a service at this point in comparison to everything that's happened. Um, I admit to something funny, which is have this candle tell me you don't have this candle. no 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 oh okay. my goodness not that embarrassing but when i first read this headline that was like gwyneth paltrow's vagina candle explodes given like the invasiveness of her other products sometimes i thought that this was a candle that you like put in your vagina and it explodes like like ear first. candling yes yeah, and so I was like really horrified, like, oh my gosh, did someone get hurt? And then I later determined it is a, a candle that's supposed to smell like a vagina, which sounds like a horrible thing to like fill your house with Look. or whatever. You know, I was like, I don't know what's worse. Like, yeah, I was like, I don't know I, why you I would want a candle in your vagina or a, or a candle or that smells like a smell vagina. Like one. But <laughs> either way, it was bad. But I definitely thought it was like something to go in your vagina that I don't know was some one of her weird cleanses or something. <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow is a good example of someone that no one says no to or that no one has said no to in a very long time. <laughs> and so she comes up with these ideas and everyone around is like, wow, good idea, Gwen. Yeah, let's do that right now. Like no there's been no like, you're dumb. That's not how it works. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Out of all of this, the main thought on my mind is I really want to smell this. I want to know what this smells like. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what does she think vaginas smell like? I don't know. Right. <laughs> That's our show. Tasneem Ahmed, thank you for having some fun with us today. <laughs> yes, me. thank you. It's nice. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. AJ and Alex had to leave, but thank you to you all for being on today's episode. And if I didn't thank you, Shortcuts, for making us a part of your week, you'd have every right to beat me with one of Gwyneth Paltrow's exploding vaginas. <laughs> if you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show wherever fine podcasts are available. Our editors are AJ Chowdhury and Eric Bozart, and Alex Belzer is our marketing coordinator. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine student government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. Up to you in one week. Oh,